It has been almost exactly 10 years since I moved down to Newcastle uh, to take up the role of being the youth leader uh, here at Regent Chapel. Um, for many people, the idea of being a youth leader or youth worker um, is an intimidating one. Um, but that's a job that I have actually always enjoyed, even when I did it in a voluntary capacity. Uh, one that I've always enjoyed and one that I've always felt that God has gifted me to. Um, but the idea of standing up and speaking to a group of teenagers can be an intimidating prospect for lots of people. Uh, lots of people ask me regularly how I do what I do, uh, how I manage to, um, to spend my time with young people and how I manage to speak with them and, and engage with them. Uh, and like I say, I feel like God has specifically gifted me um, to be able to do that and for the last 10 years has continually um, built upon that, that gifting. Um, but I also I have a bit of a theory um, that I found it a little bit easier to get young people to listen to me um, over the last 10 years for one reason and that is my accent. For the first few years, I realised that young people were more likely to listen to and engage with me because they were fascinated by my accent. Um, as someone who has come from a different place with a different accent, I think uh, that young people were more likely to, to listen and engage uh, and maybe sit up a little bit whenever I was speaking to them. I know for a fact that they would sit up and listen whenever I said world instead of world, which is the way that a lot of people would, would say it uh, in Newcastle, or they would laugh when I would say burger instead of burger. And I, I, might, I, might be, I might be good at my own accent, but I'll admit I'm not great at the, at the English accent, at the Newcastle accent. Uh, they would try and get me to say purple and murder rather than purple or murder. And apparently, just saying all the letters that are present in a word is hilarious because, well, let's, let's leave that debate uh, for another day. But the point that I'm making is that I reckon that I had a bit of an easier ride in youth work, uh, that maybe I had a bit more reception, maybe I had a little bit... Uh, more of an ability to, to engage with young people just because I'm a little bit different and exotic. Uh, maybe I get a little bit more attention because I have a different accent to them. And I'm pretty sure that I would have found the reception um, to be not quite as favourable if I'd been doing this job that I'm doing in my hometown of Greenock. Uh, which is where I'm from and where I sound just like everyone else or at least I used to until I spent 10 years here in Newcastle. So that's just my theory um, but since uh, being a youth worker uh, in Newcastle I think that I've had a little bit extra leeway uh, in being able to stand up and engage and speak with young people because I'm different and from a different place and have a different accent. That's just my theory. As a church, we have been spending a few weeks going through the book of John, the gospel of John. That word gospel just means good news. The reason that John wrote this gospel, this book of good news, is to tell us, the reader, about Jesus, to tell the reader about who Jesus is. Um, and so it's called the gospel of John because it's filled with good news. 
Um, and the reason that he wrote this book is because he has good news to share. And that good news is all about Jesus. And in going through the book of John, we've learned a great deal about who Jesus is and why he came to this world. Um, we have learned about how important it is to not just see Jesus as a historical figure or a good teacher or someone that said some good things, did some good things at some point in history, um, but that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, one who has come to save the world from sin. Uh, and what we are about to read in our passage today um, is the second sign of who Jesus is and what he is like. So in verse 54 of our passage, John tells us this is the second sign that Jesus performed. And throughout the course of the book of John, we are going to read of seven signs um, that, that John tells us, that, that miracles that Jesus performed or signs that he showed the world. Um, and at the very end in the book of John, in chapter 20 and verse 30, John tells us why he has written his book. And he tells us why he's included these seven signs. Uh, and this is what it says. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we're going to read uh, our passage together uh, just now. And we're going to remember that this is the second sign that Jesus performed. And John is telling us that there were many signs, but he's included these seven. And it says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And today, as we read our passage, I want us to think about what that word means to believe and to think about what this sign shows us about who Jesus is. So let's read our passage together. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. 
So this is the second sign that we've read about. The first one was at the wedding in Cana when Jesus turned water into wine. So this is the second out of the seven signs. And let's remember again why John has written these signs for us. In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's just remember for a moment that this is the reason that John wrote this book, this gospel, this good news, so that the reader might know who Jesus is. Because the first thing that we encounter in this passage that we've just read is a question of who Jesus is. And our passage today is about who Jesus is. And we read, after the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So Jesus had been in Galilee, as we read, and he had turned this water into wine, which was the first sign of his power as the Son of God. And then having spent some time in Jerusalem and presumably done more things and said more things and and got some more attention, he then heads to Judea and then he heads back home to Galilee, which is where he was from. Verse 44 here is a reference to chapter 6 of the book of Mark which says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So John is referring back to this chapter 6 of the book of Mark and he's referring to a time when Jesus said these words and he said that prophet has no honour in his own town and he found the reception to himself, to who he was, to be particularly difficult in the place that he was from. What that means quite simply is that the people in his hometown didn't want to know. They weren't impressed. They weren't receptive. His message didn't have the impact that it had in other places. We read last week back in verse 42, we saw that the Samaritans had welcomed him. They'd listened to him. They'd come to the conclusion in verse 42 of chapter 4. They said that he was the saviour of the world which is exactly the response that the person and the work of Jesus Christ should get. 
But what Jesus found was that that wasn't the response of the people from back home. That wasn't the response of the people that had grown up with him, that knew him, that were around him. Maybe in a very, very simplistic way, it's a bit like if I tried to be a youth worker in my hometown of Greenock, where this delightful accent is simply just how everyone talks. It's not exotic at all, it's the standard. And in other places like Newcastle, maybe it is more a bit exotic and exciting and, oh, we want to listen to him. Okay, I think I'm maybe overstating it a bit now. But for Jesus, he spoke like everyone else. He maybe even had a bit of, well, that's just Joseph's son. Isn't, isn't that the carpenter? That's what Mark said. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And he was specifically talking about how the reception to himself in his hometown was not like what it was in other places. So in our story, John tells us that Jesus arrives in Galilee having said a prophet has no honour in his hometown and is welcomed by the Galileans. So that's a confusing way for John to write. Um, That's a bit of an oxymoron. He isn't welcomed in his hometown and yet they welcomed him. Well, what we're about to see, we're about to see what John means exactly by this. And it all hangs on the little phrase that we read in there. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. So Jesus arrives in Cana and we read this. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And this is the response. Jesus is not speaking specifically just to this man. He's not speaking specifically just to this request. He is speaking to all those people who have gathered, all the people that are around him, all the people that have come from his hometown to see him. He says to them, all of them, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. So this man, this royal official, someone who would have had a high position in society, someone who would have been important, who worked in the courts of Herod. This man having an ill son had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee and he went with his request. He begged Jesus, John says, to come and to heal his son. Having heard, maybe himself even having seen who Jesus was and what he could do, it seems like Jesus is the obvious person to approach with this request. And so why does Jesus respond in the way that he does? You may even suggest that when we read this, as it is, that the the response is fairly harsh. Well, that's why it's really important for us to understand the picture that John is is painting for us, specifically the situation that's going on back at home for Jesus back in Galilee, where people aren't really accepting him and his message. That people were potentially arriving, as we we read, the, the crowds welcomed him. I think what John is trying to get us to understand is that they're welcoming him, but they're not really welcoming him. The reason that John wrote this gospel is to tell us who Jesus is. 
And the suggestion seems to be that people had either heard of his miracles or sayings and wanted to see more or to see if the stories were true, that they weren't really welcoming Jesus, the saviour of the world, the promised Messiah, the one that the whole nation of Israel has been waiting and expecting, but actually that these people have come for a show, that these people have come to just see what this man can do, that they've come maybe so that they can say that they witnessed these, these great things. Although it initially looks like it, Jesus wasn't dismissing this man's request. He was rebuking the idea of only having an interest in the miraculous. He's not talking just to this man. He says, you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So Jesus is speaking to this man, but sending a message to everyone. He's rebuking the idea of having only an interest in the things that Jesus can do and having no interest in Jesus himself. I think that's what John wants us to really understand. That these people have got the wrong view of Jesus. The wrong idea of Jesus, the wrong idea of who he really is. And that Jesus here is rebuking the idea of only being interested in signs and wonders and incredible things so that you can have seen these signs and wonders and you can say that you've seen them. The point that John is making is that Jesus is is not a, a miracle vending machine. He isn't someone to look at and say, wow, that, those are great things but I don't want it to impact on my life in any way. Because these people weren't welcoming the saviour of the world. They were welcoming the chance to see some cool stuff happening. And for us, when we're reading this passage, I think that it's so important that we read this and get a proper understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a historical figure. He's not just a good teacher. The theologian C.S. Lewis wrote and said that people aren't given the option to say or believe that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. In fact, he said that that claim is patronising nonsense. He said because the things that Jesus said about himself suggest that either he was God fully or that he was completely mad. In fact, potentially evil. Because what we're reading in the Bible is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. And what John is showing us in this passage is that Jesus doesn't just do some cool things. Jesus isn't someone that we can just say, well, he was a good teacher or a historical figure. Because either... Jesus was exactly who he said he was, or he was a lunatic. The whole reason that John wrote this book that we are reading is so that we would know who Jesus really is. That he is the son of God, the saviour of the world, and the only solution to the problem of brokenness and sin in our world. The only solution to the issues that we see around us today, the things that cause pain and suffering and heartache. We read just a couple of weeks ago the the words to Nicodemus 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have to decide who Jesus is if we haven't already. And the setup to our passage today is telling us, Christians and non-Christians alike, we have to know who Jesus is. We have to understand who Jesus is and we have to make sure that we get the right view of this man, this saviour, this son of God. So can I challenge you today to really consider who Jesus is to you? As C.S. Lewis points out, there are only two options. Either all of this is rubbish and therefore it is irrelevant and Jesus is not who he claimed to be or all of it is absolutely true and therefore Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. That he is the only way to be saved from the one thing that is breaking this world in half, that is breaking our hearts, that is breaking our lives, that is sin. This evil within us, in our world, that Jesus is the only solution to that. Can I believe, can I challenge you to, to, to consider who Jesus is? Who do you believe him to be? And the next part of our passage that we're about to get to is all about that word belief. But before we get to that, I want to challenge us as our Christians. I want us to take a moment to consider our own relationship with Jesus in light of this passage. To give ourselves a little bit of a, a spiritual health check on our relationship with him right now. To consider who Jesus is to you. Maybe for some of us, we need this passage to give us a bit of a wake-up call. Because we can see from this passage that Jesus is really eager to avoid anyone seeking after some kind of transactional relationship with him. As, G as Christians, we have the incredible promise of a relationship with the God that created us from the moment that we give our lives to him through our saviour Jesus. We can have a relationship with God, our creator God. That's an incredible promise. But it's a promise of a relationship and a relationship suggests regular interaction, doesn't it? But for some of us, our relationship with Jesus may only come when life, when life is going badly. It may only come alive again when we realize that we're struggling or when we're in trouble. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him, but not a transactional one where we ignore him until we need him. Where we turn up for a show, just like the crowd do here. When we turn up for him doing something for us and then ignoring him again for a, a time after that. If your attitude to the gospel, to this relationship, is to take the offer of eternal life and then say, I'll see you when I die, then we are so badly missing the whole point of Christianity. There is an amazing promise that one day we will be in heaven with God because of his son, Jesus. But that doesn't mean that our Christian life 
is inactive until we die. The attitude of thanks for the offer of eternal life, I'll see you when I die, is missing the point of Christianity because we are invited into a relationship with the living God. And our relationship is active and regular and intentional. And that's such, such good news. Let's not miss out on the good news of being able to have a relationship with the living God. I think a lot of us could use a health check on our relationship with Jesus right now. Are we reading? Are we praying? Are we going to church or watching church? Are we worshipping and witnessing and making disciples? Are we doing the things that the Bible tells us to do? Are we living as the Bible tells us to live? Are we investing on a daily basis on the relationship we have with our God through Jesus? How is your spiritual health right now? How is your relationship with the one who saved you? I think John is very keen for us to understand here that Jesus is not some kind of genie, that he's not a stage performer or a magician. Crucially, that he's not an emergency backup to rely on when things are not going great for us. When God does incredible things in our world or in our lives, it's not so that people can see it and applaud and say, well, I'll do another one, that was cool. When Jesus performs miracles, he is displaying his power as God. And God continues to do incredible things in our world, not so that people can say those things are cool, but so that people can say that God is incredible. John is so eager for us to take the signs that Jesus performed and not say the signs are great, but to say he is great. When Jesus performs miracles, he is displaying his power as God. That he is proving that the laws of nature that mere humans are bound by do not apply to him. That he is not constrained by the laws of the world. That these are powerful, majestic acts of God. They're not tricks. They tell us that Jesus has authority over everything on this earth. That tells us so much about him. It tells us everything we need to know about him. He is God. We're not dealing with a performer, a celebrity, a magician, a genie. We're dealing with God himself. And as mind-blowing as that is, that the person that we're reading about has that nature, as mind-blowing as that is, the wonder of the gospel is that this God can be known to us. That we can have a relationship with him. What amazing grace that is. And if we see the Christian life as simply being a transactional offer, we're missing all of that. If we say, I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to get eternal life, but I'm going to live my life until I die and then I've got something to fall back on. We're missing the point completely. And if, if we say that we're Christians and if we, if we act like we're Christians, but actually we don't have a living daily relationship with Jesus, we're missing out on so much. We're missing out on a regular and intentional relationship with the creator God. What amazing grace that is. So let's just, let's have a, a little bit of a health check. 
where we are before him right now. Are we reading? Are we praying? Are we worshipping? Are we intentional? Do we shape our lives around him? Or do we just cram him in whenever things aren't going great for us? Whenever we need a backup plan? Let's not fall into the trap of treating Jesus like that. Once we have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, we see that we have the ability to bring our requests to him. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 to 7 say, In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God not only allows us to bring our prayers and requests to him, but actively delights in that. Imagine that he delights in hearing our prayers and our requests. And the things that are on our heart are important to God. God wants us to bring our prayers to him. And Romans 8.15 tells us that as we do, we get to call him Abba Father. That word Abba suggests a close and familial relationship. That is mind-blowing intimacy with the creator of all things. Back in our passage, we see the difference between someone who wants to see some cool things, someone who wants to see impressive things, who wants a show. We see the difference between someone like that and someone who believes. This royal official believes. We read, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. The key phrase there is in verse 50, that the man took Jesus at his word. If you can, put yourself in the shoes of this father, someone who has deep concern for a loved one who is unwell. He's travelled for a day from Capernaum to Galilee to bring this response to Jesus. And maybe his hope is that Jesus will come with him, will make the journey alongside him, will come into his house where his son was and heal him. But if that was his expectation, the reality was that Jesus just said simply, go, your son will live. He informs him that his son will live and he takes Jesus at his word. And we see that he was rewarded for, for that faith. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And rather than pressing the matter, rather than saying, no, no, you have to come with me. You have to come with me. He takes him at his word. He believes what Jesus has said. Imagine that journey home that lasted for about a day was pretty hard work. I imagine that he would have had so many questions in his head as he's making that journey home. 
questions of should I have pressed him more? Should I have asked for more information or insisted that he come? I know that many of us have had to wait for our prayers to be answered. Many of us might still be waiting for prayers to be answered. Many of us have had to wait to hear from God. This man was desperate, probably heartbroken. Those 24 hours must have felt like a lifetime, as they so often do when we pray in desperation, or when we're waiting for God to act or to speak, to tell us what he wants for us, to show us who he is. But this man took Jesus at his word. He had faith. He believed the words that Jesus said. And 24 hours later, he knew for certain that Jesus had healed his son. And we read that his whole household believed. So what is it that they believed? Did they believe that Jesus could heal? Well, yes, but that's not all. Did they believe that Jesus could perform miracles? Yes, again, but that's not all. What they believed and the whole point that John is making throughout this gospel, when he tells us of these signs, they believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah and the Saviour of the world. How much faith does one need to believe something for which there is 100% evidence? God wants faith from us and wants us to choose to believe. If God was to open up the clouds and wave down at all of us, we would be compelled to believe. Eight billion people would be compelled to believe. That wouldn't give us the chance to accept or reject him. So God has given us the capacity to think and to reason and to believe so that we would choose to. It's really important for us to understand how how big a deal that is, that God didn't create robots. When God created humankind, he didn't create robots that would have no free will and therefore have to worship him. Instead, God gave us the ability to choose to believe. And he gave us the evidence that we needed to make that decision. Just through looking at creation, we can see evidence of a creator. And through the person of Jesus, we can see God. If we want to know what God is like, we just have to look at Jesus, the person of Jesus. We have the evidence to believe in who God is, who Jesus is, so that we might take him at his word, so that we might believe. Notice that John doesn't go on to tell us what the son did next. He doesn't tell us that he went off to work or that he had a game of football. He doesn't focus on the physical recovery of the son. He focuses on the spiritual recovery of the entire family, including the son. And the point that John is making here is that Jesus invites people to life, real life, eternal life, not to miracles, not to physical healing, but to healing from sin, to healing of the problem that, that ails all of us, that we are sinful in our nature. Because miracles last for a time, 
But eternal life is forever. It is eternal. And this is the real miracle. And that's what John wants us to see here. That yes, Jesus can heal people's physical ailments. And that is incredible. And that is a witness to who he is. But the whole point is that this family were saved from sin. Yes, that son recovered from that physical illness. But the real issue was the sin. That's what John wants us to focus on. And that's why Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Because when we have 100% evidence, there is no need for faith. The real issue was the sin. And so Jesus healed the physical issue. But Jesus also healed the spiritual issue. The fever was an issue. Physical health is important. But so much more important than that is our spiritual health. Ephesians 2 and 8 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We have so much to be thankful to God for. As we finish, let us consider who we believe Jesus to be. Who does this passage tell us Jesus is? And who is Jesus to to each one of us? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this saviour, this messiah. I pray, Father God, that you will help us to consider today who Jesus is to us. I pray that you will open up our hearts and minds, help us to to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace of that. Thank you for the, the faith that you give us. Father God, help us to live in a way that is pleasing to you this week. Help us to live in a way that is worthy of what we have read this morning. Help us to point people to Jesus. Help us to consider who you are by looking at the wonderful works of Jesus Christ. Amen.